You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. I see we have a lot of guests with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to see you all. Amen. Amen. We can, we can make a little bit of noise for the visitors that are with us this morning. Thank you so much for, for joining us. If you're tuning in online and worshiping with us that way, thank you so much for, for joining us, uh, even though you aren't able to be with us in person today. I just got to say, y'all some real ones for being in here today. It was cold. We just lost an hour of sleep. Y'all some real ones for being here today. I thought it was going to be a slim group today. Praise God. Praise God for the saints in the cold weather. Amen. Without the sleep. Glad you guys are here with us. So earlier in this series, as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts, I talked about how early in the book, in the, in the first chapter, Jesus is letting his disciples know that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them and that they're going to be his witnesses. He talked about in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I said that I believe that is actually not just a theme in this book. I think it's the thesis of this book. And since then, we've been going through different ways that we are called to live as his witnesses. What does it look like for us to live in that identity? And today we'll look into the fact that even though it's a, it's a glorious and it is a beautiful thing to live as a witness of Christ, it's not always pretty. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not always a pretty thing. How do we live as witnesses for Christ in a world that I would say, or in a time that I would say that in our, in our area, people are becoming more and more hostile towards the, the, the news of Jesus, the word of God. Good news for us today is our passage will give us a lot of help in this area. We'll be covering a lot of scripture today. I hope you like the Bible. Let's go ahead and jump into it. Acts chapter 6, we'll start it at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. So early in the chapter, Stephen had been promoted to a position of leadership within the church. Early in the chapter, he was referred to as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And God has been using him to work these miracles and wonders. God is affirming that he is with Stephen. He's working in and through Stephen. And then some of the people came to Stephen to dispute and argue with him. It's a theme in the book of Acts that as they go, go on living as witnesses for Christ, there is consistently opposition to their message and consistently opposition to what they are doing. And as they were opposing Stephen because of the way the Holy Spirit was working in and through him and because of the wisdom with, with which he spoke, they couldn't do anything with him. They couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit that was in him. So arguing with him wasn't working, so they decided to try something else. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up. Remember that they're saying that he's the one that was speaking blasphemously against Moses. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 12, and they stirred up the, the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I believe what Luke, the author of this book, is is doing right now is he's not only setting up the opposition that, that Stephen is facing, but he's also making it very clear that the Holy Spirit is with Stephen in this time. So they are secretly instigating people to make accusations against Stephen. They're stirring up the religious leaders and they seize him. They likely seize them with force to bring him before the council. And they set up these false witnesses to come and lie on him. And then we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 1, they give Stephen an opportunity to respond. It reads, and the high priest said, are these things so? So they, they instigate all of this. They bring in these false witnesses. And then the high priest says to him, is this true? Is what they're saying true? They give Stephen an opportunity to defend himself. They give him an opportunity to deny the false witnesses that are against him. But here's what Stephen does. And it's actually very Christ-like. So I believe Jesus did this multiple times. Instead of spending his time dealing with all the false witnesses that are standing against him, He decides to spend his time focusing on living as a witness and standing for the one who is with him. He actually doesn't go in and answer all of their questions, but he continues to live faithfully as a witness of Christ. And we don't have time to read everything that Stephen said because the brother Lily talks from verse 2 to verse 53. (laughs) But I will point out some of the things that I believe he is emphasizing that Luke is trying to emphasize as he writes this to help us get, a, get the idea of the bigger picture of Stephen's sermon. As we go through the highlights of, these, of this sermon that Stephen preaches, remember how Luke has described Stephen already. He's described him as a man full of wisdom and of the spirit and who God has done these great signs and wonders through. Now in this sermon that Philip gives in response to this question, he focuses on times that God's messengers and God's people were being stood against by men while God stood with them. You you need to notice this theme as we go through this, where, where, where man stood against them, but God was with them. So he goes through a lot of the story of the Old Testament in this sermon. That's about 50 verses or so. And one of the first people that he points out uh, is a man named Joseph. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph, his father gives him this, this coat that had these many colors in it. His, his brothers didn't like Stephen a whole lot. I mean, didn't like Joseph a whole lot. They ended up selling him into slavery in Egypt. He didn't do anything wrong at this time, but they sell him as a slave to Egypt. But it says throughout that story in Genesis, it says over and over again that God was with him, that God was with him. And God gives him the ability to interpret some people's dreams. And long story short, Joseph ended up ruling in Egypt and eventually being able to save his family when the famine came to not only Egypt, but also to Canaan where his family was living. God was with Joseph, even though Joseph's brothers and many others were against him. And then he goes and talks about Moses. And to give you a little bit of, of background, because we'll read a, read a couple of verses of what uh, Stephen says about Moses. But to give a little background, Moses actually killed an Egyptian man that was harming one of his people, one of the Israelites. And so he kills the, this Egyptian man. And then a little bit later, he has this interaction with two uh, Israelites, two of his, his people. We'll start at verse 26. It says, and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? So these two Israelites were arguing and quarreling with each other. And Moses comes in and he's trying to to help them to reconcile. Verse 27. 
But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So we see Moses being rejected as he's stepping in and trying to help. But this happens many more times. Stephen goes on to show how even after God used Moses to free the Israelites from bondage, even after God used Moses to redeem his people, they still rejected him. We'll jump down to verse 39. He says, our fathers refused to obey him, talking about Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Once again, they are thrusting Moses aside. They are rejecting Moses. Even though Moses is simply trying to lead them to follow God, Moses is trying to to help them, to serve them, to lead them towards truth, that they might live as God has designed them to live. God was with Moses, but the people were not. The people were against him. This is what Stephen is communicating to those that he is standing before at this time. But they didn't just reject Moses. They didn't just reject Joseph. They rejected the Holy Spirit and the prophets as well. Let's jump down to verse 51 and 52. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He essentially calls them stubborn by calling them uncircumcised in their hearts and ears. It's like an ancient uh, Hebrew or Jewish way of saying that, that, that what they love and what they hear and what, maybe what they understand is based on their sinful nature, not based on what the Holy Spirit wants them to love and what the Holy Spirit desires them to hear. And in verse 42, the brother starts asking for receipts. I mean, 52, he starts asking for receipts. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Which of the ones that God sent to you to instruct you in how to live and follow him did y'all not persecute? He's like, we ain't even asking which, like, how many can you count that, 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 they, they, excuse me, that they did persecute. He says, name for me one that y'all didn't persecute. He says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He said, y'all, y'all killed the ones who came and told y'all about this righteous one who was coming. You resist the Holy Spirit. You, you persecuted the prophets. He even went and talked about their ancestors. And remember, he's talking to the ones who consider themselves to be the religious elite, the ones who had propped themselves up to be seen as righteous. They had built this whole kind of collective identity as these are the righteous ones that people should follow in over and over again, starting with their grandparents, their forefathers. Stephen is saying, y'all always resist what God is calling you to do. Let's look at verse 52 again. We'll read the whole verse. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You killed the ones who proclaimed about the righteous one coming. And then when he came, you killed and betrayed and murdered him as well. Recap. Your forefathers rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. You and your forefathers rejected the Holy Spirit. Your forefathers rejected and persecuted every prophet that was sent to you to tell you about the coming of Jesus, the righteous one. And then you rejected and betrayed and murdered the righteous one that the prophets told you about. You betrayed him and you murdered him. And then there's, as I said a little bit earlier, there's one more that God sent to them 
to lead them towards righteousness that they kill as well. And that is Stephen, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Right, Luke has given us a picture of what this was like. The people that, that Stephen was looking at, they're grinding their teeth. They're so angry. You've seen someone so angry before that it has a physical manifestation in their body. This is what was going on at this time. Verse 55. But he, talking about Stephen, full of the spirit, gazed into heaven. Remember that phrase. Gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. So they hear him saying this. They block their ears. They're so angry about what he's saying. They're so offended at what he's saying that they run and seize him and grab him and take him out of the city. And they begin to stone him. It says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a, last, with a loud voice. These are the last known words of Stephen. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They did the exact same thing to Stephen. The exact thing that he was telling them that they always do. They did to him in that moment. Stephen is next in a long list of people whom God stood with as men stood against him. And God was with Stephen just as he was with all those others who were rejected while standing for righteousness. Now, just so we're clear, the emphasis of this text is that these are people that were standing for righteousness, that were following God, and others rejected them as they stood for righteousness. This is not just about somebody hating on you. It's not what this is about. This is about those who face opposition as they seek to live, live faithfully as witnesses of Christ. But here's what's crazy and mind-blowing to me. Stephen's last words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. While they were hurling stones at his head to kill him, he was praying for God to forgive them. And he wasn't just praying for God to forgive them of some ambiguous random sin or amount of sins that they have committed. No, he's saying, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold it against them that they are doing the same thing to me that I am telling them that they should stop doing because their forefathers did it and they're doing the same thing right now Father, forgive them for this very sin. There's not an ounce of seeking to retaliate against them. There's, there, there's not an ounce of, of, of God, give them what they deserve for this in him. God, don't hold this against them. Don't hold this against them. And listen, you know this, you learn a lot about someone when they're in a trial. You learn a lot about what's really in someone when they're going through a time of great difficulty. And this man in the middle of a trial as he's being mistreated, as he's literally being murdered, when he's looking at the faces of people who are in the process of killing him for doing everything right by them, for being honest with them, what comes out of him is prayer for their forgiveness. This shows that these are people that he deeply loved. These are people that he wanted good for. These are people that he cared deeply about. And listen, I'm not saying this just primarily so we can think super highly of Stephen. But I'm bringing this up because I want us to I want to make sure that we know how to interpret the message that Stephen was given to them. I want us to be able to accurately interpret where it came from. 
I want us to be able to see that it came from a place of love. I want you to see that the words that he said to them came from the same place of love as the prayer that he prayed for them in this time. That these words that he said, because if you look back, Stephen was talking real heavy. I mean, literally, they're accusing him of, of, of doing wrong by Moses, right? Of misquoting Moses, of, of being against Moses. And he's like, our forefathers are the ones that, that, that didn't listen to him. He was one of the ones that was rejected in, in the sermon that Stephen gives. He's talking extremely heavy. He's being extremely offensive. He's being aggressive. He seems unconcerned with whether or not those he, he was talking to were offended by his words. And yet we know it was coming from a place of love. These are people, again, that had built their reputation and their identity off of the belief that they that they had more righteousness than many others, and yet he's telling them that they're stubborn in their sin. He told them that they're resisting God's spirit. He told them that they're just like their sinful forefathers. He called them murderers, saying that they had murdered and betrayed the righteous one. The people who have propped up this identity for themselves as being the righteous ones, he's looking at them, it's like, no, 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 no. The righteous one already came and y'all murdered him, is what he's saying to them. And I believe that in today's day and age, if Stephen would have done something similar, spoken in similar ways, been similarly as aggressive and quote unquote harsh with his words, some today might say he's being disrespectful. Some today might might call that type of language hate speech. Some today might say he's speaking too harshly. Maybe he should find a more gentle way to say what he's saying. Some today might say that that type of speech is toxic. Now, don't get me wrong. I knew that word would strike with some of y'all. Now, don't get me wrong. It is important that we are caring and loving and kind and gracious with our speech. We see that in Scripture. That is important, but it is also important that we are honest and at times that we are direct with people. It is also important that we are willing to tell people the truths that they don't want to hear at times. That is important. I hope you see right here that 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 is coming from a place of love. How many people do you know would love someone so much to pray for their forgiveness while they are murdering them? This man has deep, deep love for them, and he is being extremely honest and extremely blunt and direct with them about their sin. At the same time, those two are not mutually exclusive, but I feel like oftentimes in our culture, we believe that you can't both love someone and tell them that they're wrong. You can't both love someone and say, I disagree with your lifestyle. That we can't both love someone and say that God, what you're doing is sinful and it is against God. But we have the example right here in scripture that Philip deeply loved, um, Stephen deeply loved them. Sorry, I think Philip's next week. Stephen deeply loved them and yet was willing to be brutally honest with them. Y'all look at Proverbs chapter 27, verse five and six. It says, better an open rebuke than love that is concealed. What's the implication here? That if you're unwilling at times to bring open rebuke to people, that you that the, the love that you have is actually concealed. You're actually concealing your love for people if you are not being honest with them and in certain times about things they need to be rebuked about. Verse six: Faithful are the wounds of a friend; profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
This is saying it's actually not a loving thing oftentimes to be overly flattering to someone or to not be willing to be honest with someone in a way that might wound them. God is showing us through this passage that sometimes loving people means wounding them. And you need, to know that, you need to know that because if you're going to live faithfully as a witness of Christ, sometimes you're going to have to tell people things that they don't want to hear. Things that might offend them, things that might hurt their feelings. Sometimes living righteously means saying things that will hurt people's feelings. And this is important for us to remember as God's witnesses because I think it's oftentimes easier for us to tell people about the good things about Jesus without being able to tell them about the bad things about them that reveal their need for Jesus. I'm going to say that again. This is important for us to remember as he has made us his witnesses because it's often easier for us to tell people a lot of the good things about Jesus without being willing to tell them about the bad things about them that help reveal to them their need for Jesus. This is important. It's easier for us to tell people about how God has changed our lives and about how we can't imagine where we would, where we would be or what our life would be like without them. And that's great and important. I hope we continue to do those things. But it's easier to tell people about those things than to tell people about how they need Jesus because of their sin. I think oftentimes we give people a bit of a skewed view of who Jesus is because Jesus isn't described in the Bible just as being a blesser. Blesser is a word I made up to talk about someone who blesses somebody. <laughs> I think oftentimes we give people a little bit of a skewed view of Jesus because we describe him as one who is a quote unquote blesser, but the Bible describes him primarily as a savior. And the Bible is very clear that the thing he came to save us from is sin. Very clear. And that sin lives in their heart. It lives in their lives and it lives in the life of every single person that you and I come in contact with. And they need to be saved from the guilt that they have before God and from the power that that sin has over them. And this is part of the good news of what Jesus comes to offer us. And if we are to be witnesses of his, if we are to testify about him and who he is, let's give people a more full view. Because, hey, we're not calling people to to accept just half of who Jesus is. You know what I'm saying? We're not calling people to, to, to accept some, some malformed creation of who Jesus is that comes from our preferences and comes from what we think people will more easily accept. No, either they want to love Jesus or they won't. So let's present him as he truly is if we're going to be his witnesses. Let's share him as fully as we possibly know how in all of his glory, in all of his might, in all of his righteousness, in all of his grace. Our sweet Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I would say that if you're a follower of Jesus and you hear me saying this and you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I can say that to someone. If that's where you're at, you need to understand that there is a problem, that you have a problem. And oftentimes the problem is that you're actually right. We fear man more than we fear God. And oftentimes the problem is we fear man more than we fear God. Let me explain what I mean. Biblically speaking, the Bible speaks positively of us fearing God and speaks negatively of us fearing man or fearing people. One quick example, we don't have time, we're not going to be able to spend much time here, but in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, who was king over God's people, after they had battled with one of their enemies, they were supposed to destroy uh, some of the things that were there. And, he, and Saul knew what they were supposed to destroy. 
But he didn't, he didn't tell his people to do that. They wanted to keep some of what they were supposed to destroy. Paul, Saul did not tell them not to. And he's, he's confronted by a prophet about this. And this is what Saul ends up saying to Samuel the prophet, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. If you recall, you see the same thing in Jesus's ministry. Oftentimes they wanted to try to arrest Jesus or do this to Jesus and that to Jesus, but they didn't do it. Why? Because they feared the people. Biblically speaking, fearing people over fearing God is when you, is when the, 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 the thoughts when the desires of people ring louder in your mind and in your heart than the thoughts and the word and the desires of God. When the expectations that people have for you matter more to you than the expectations that God has for you, that means you fear people more than you fear God. If you're more concerned with what other people want you to do or what other people think you should do, if you're more concerned with whether someone might reject you more than you're concerned with, with, and you're more concerned with those things than you are concerned with what God wants you to do, what God says you should do, or how God might feel about what you do, then again, biblically, you fear man more than you fear God. I want to show you one of the reasons it is so important for you to know that. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know that because you can't fear people and rightly love people. You can't fear people and rightly love people at the same time. And you also can't fear people and rightly love God. And you got to think about what did Jesus say what the two greatest commandments were? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love people as yourself. And if you do not, and if you fear people, you're not able to, to rightly love God, nor are you able to rightly love people. Fearing people will keep you from doing both of the two that Jesus says are the greatest commandments. But the fear of God will allow you to love people and love God. I'll try to give you a quick example. Some of you, if you're in a life group in our church, you likely have a Christian brother or sister in your life group that potentially has sin in their lives. And you, you, you have sensed, maybe not now, maybe in the past, have sensed maybe a, a, an inkling from the Holy Spirit feeling compelled by the Holy Spirit to say something. Maybe, maybe there's sin that's being unrepented of in their heart, or maybe they're not aware of it, and you, and you feel called or led to say something to them, but you felt this fear of how they might respond. And the question is before you in that moment, who, whose thoughts, whose desires, whose expectations ring louder in your mind and in your heart? In this case, in this situation, if we're unwilling to rebuke our brothers and sisters in love, that means oftentimes that we fear them more than we fear God. And because of that, you don't love them. You're not rightly loving them and you're not rightly loving God in that moment. The fear of man is keeping you from loving as you should. But if you care more about what God thinks about you than you care about what other people think about you, you're able to rightly love people and God because God will always call you to love people. This is what he will always call you to do. Now, I want to push this a step further. Fearing people not only leads you to not loving people rightly, it actually leads you to using people. Fearing people actually leads you to using people. If you can't tell someone the truth they need to hear because you're afraid of their rejection, then you are using them for their acceptance. 
You are using them instead of loving them. You're essentially saying, I'm not going to give you what you need, which is the truth, because I can't have you stop giving me what I need from you, which is your acceptance and approval of me. I'm willing to let you harm yourself because I need your acceptance to help me feel good about myself. It's using people. It's using people. It's using them to fill up something that is lacking within yourself. And family, as many in our world are more and more angry towards the historic teachings of our faith, many churchgoers have tried to baptize our fear of man by calling ourselves gracious and kind and accepting and tolerant. We have baptized our fear of man in trying to use good and accepting language about it. And it is harmful and it is preventing us from living faithfully as the witnesses of Christ that the Holy Spirit came to empower us to be. The truth is, as we might try to justify our fear of man, the truth is for some of us, we were cool with standing for the truth when we weren't despised for it. But now that many in our world see the Bible as outdated, now that many in our world see the Bible as repressive and even hateful towards those who disagree, our fear of man is is showing itself in our unwillingness to engage as his witnesses in loving and honest conversations with those who do not know our God. Our fear of man is showing itself. And we don't have time to fear people when we have a world full of people that are going to be justly and righteously condemned by God because of their sin if they don't repent and turn to him. It's just the truth. It's just the truth that we are called to testify to. It's just the truth that we see in the word of God. Let us not shrink back because we fear man. And you need to know if you're going to be a faithful witness, a faithful witness of Christ, you need to know that sometimes saying the thing that will cause you to be hated is the most loving and God-fearing thing you can do. Sometimes saying the thing that will cause you to be hated or despised or rejected is the most loving and God-fearing thing that you can do. I want us to remember Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6, 22 through 23. Reads, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He's saying, blessed are you when this is the case. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Christ said that they would hate us for doing what is right. And that's exactly what's happening to Stephen here in Acts chapter 7. I want us to look back at verse 55 and 56. It says, but he, talking about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here's the thing about Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Generally speaking, in the New Testament, it talks about Jesus after he was resurrected. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Generally speaking, Jesus is seated, but right here, when Stephen looks into heaven, as he gazes into heaven, as he, he is seeing the rejection of man, but he is looking up to God to receive his acceptance. He says he sees Jesus standing, which I believe is a sign of solidarity that Jesus is showing with them. I believe he's showing with him that even though these people are standing against you, as you stand for me, I stand with you. He gave a, he gave a sermon in heaven, stood up. 
He gave a sermon that was honest, that was difficult to hear, that was offensive. And he looks up and Jesus is standing, looking down at him, expressing his approval, expressing his solidarity. I know they have rejected you, but I am with you. I know they stand against you, but I stand with you. You want to know how to not give in to the fear of man. Do exactly what Stephen did and gaze into heaven. And realize that if my actions are approved by him, I don't need my actions to be approved by people that he created. If the creator stands with me, I don't need the creation to stand with me. Might we value him approving what we are doing, him approving our lives, him approving that we are living as his witnesses. The crowd is standing against Stephen, but heaven is standing with him. The people rushed to cast Stephen out of the city and stone him, but Jesus is ready to welcome him into the heavenly city and crown him. And when you live as a witness for Jesus, there are some who will despise you or despise the truth that you are testifying to. And when they do hate, when they do hate you, excuse me, for doing what is righteous, you can do just as Stephen did and look up to heaven. And you can know that you join a long list of people the Moseses, the prophets, Jesus himself. And you know, you can join in with Stephen when they stood for God and for his righteousness and God stood with them even though man rejected them and stood against them. Don't let their rejection of you ring louder in your mind than the acceptance that you have with, with Christ and the fact and the solidarity that you have with your Savior in those moments, in those moments when you feel rejected, in those moments when you fear being rejected by other people. Let your mind, let your eyes, let your gaze go up to Christ and know that he stands with you when you stand for righteousness. You can look to him and you can enjoy and cherish your fellowship and your solidarity with him, knowing that he knows exactly what you're experiencing knowing that there's not a single person on earth, there's not a single person that you can go to that will understand what you're feeling in that moment, that can understand what you're going through in that moment. As he was rejected by his own people, as he was hung on a cross and he was killed, as he stood for righteousness, as he stood for the truth. And here's the thing, he, he accepted that rejection for you. That is how you know him. This is a part of why we worship him. Because he was willing to be rejected, because he was willing to be cast out, because he feared God more than he feared man. And he was able to be honest with you about your sin that you might turn away from it and come to worship him. His willingness to be rejected gives you the greatest joy that you have in your life. This is why we worship him. Because he is loving and honest and strong enough to be able to deal with the rejection of man. As he loves God, he has been there. He has been there for you. He was able to rightly love you because he, wasn't, he didn't fear your rejection. He didn't fear the rejection of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the religious leaders of his day. And my prayer, and I hope you pray the same thing, may the same be said of us. May the same be said of us. That we don't fear the rejection of others, that we don't fear the rejection of our family, that we don't fear the rejection of our coworkers, that we don't fear the rejection of our friends, that we don't fear the rejection of whoever God leads us towards. Because we know that heaven stands with us when we stand for righteousness and when we stand for truth. And when we are tempted to, when we feel that we're tempted to be moved by the rejection of people, may we find solace in the truth that he stands with us when we stand for him.